This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Despite all the planting delays that rains and wet soils are causing, the corn is looking pretty good, save for some washed out areas. However, we will likely see some effects of nitrogen loss caused by denitrification and leaching soon, if it keeps raining. Nitrogen deficient corn will look a paler yellow than it should and grow slower. It's important to note that yellow corn at this current growing stage can be deceiving. The young corn could be having a difficult time getting roots expanded while tops are growing quickly, yellowing corn despite adequate nitrogen levels in the soil. In times, the roots will catch up. Nitrogen loss from leaching in our thin clay soils is less of an issue than it is in sandier areas. In clay soils, each inch of infiltrated rainfall moves the nitrate down the same one inch. This is only rain that has moved into the soil, but much of our rain has left in runoff, which takes a certain amount of nitrogen with it as well. Here, however, denitrification will be a much larger issue. Denitrification occurs when microbes can't get enough oxygen in waterlogged soils, so they use the nitrate for the respiration instead and turn it into a gas. But before denitrification can occur, microbes have to turn the ammonia fertilizer into nitrates, and this is a process that requires oxygen. This year, it is somewhat like last year, where we have remained so waterlogged that much of the nitrogen should be kept safe in its original ammonia form. However, this year, we've had some dry periods to allow for the ammonia nitrate conversion, so denitrification could be slightly worse. The conversion ammonia to nitrate depends on oxygen availability in the soil, soil temperature, soil pH, fertilizer type, and lastly, how the fertilizer was applied. Anhydrous tends to have a lower rate of conversion because the anhydrous ammonia placement suppresses the microbes at the application site. The more spread out a fertilizer, like from broadcasting rather than band placement, the faster the rate of conversion. Therefore, the question is how much nitrogen has been lost is in two parts. How much ammonia has been converted to nitrate and how much nitrogen has been denitrified. A study from Nebraska showed that at optimum soil temperature at 75 to 80 degrees and waterlogged for three days, 60% of the nitrate was denitrified. While our soils have been less than 75 degrees, they have been waterlogged for an extended period of time, so much of the nitrates have likely been lost. We still have plenty of warm and likely wet weather in front of us. The losses from denitrification will continue to increase. The total losses from denitrifications can reach 40 to 50% in wet years like this one, but it'll be worse in the lower parts of the field where the water stands. Nitrates in soils is really a balancing act of ammonia fertilizer converting to nitrates, nitrates being taken up by plants or lost through denitrification, and also organic matter breaking down into nitrogen. Tracking nitrate levels in the soil is not easy. The good news is that top dress nitrogen applied shortly before corn tasseling is readily utilized. Application rates of 30 to 50 pounds of additional N is common. If you have any questions about nitrogen losses or application rates, please contact me at 620-778-1037. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat Extension District. I have been fielding lots of calls these past few weeks on grazing systems, weed management, and alternative options. Producers are interested in a longer grazing season, and that means fewer days of putting out hay. They are also looking for a more manageable pasture system. There are basically eight management practices to make this happen. Stockpiling a cool season forage, 
stockpiling a warm season forage, growing legumes, growing summer annual forage, growing winter annual forage, reducing hay losses in storage, and reducing hay losses during feeding. Demonstrations have been conducted with as few as 5 head and as many as 500 head, underlining the fact that an extended grazing season can work for nearly any sized operation. These demonstrations utilized herds of cattle, herds of horses, and even small ruminants, confirming that the program can work for all segments of the livestock industry. Producers might not achieve a grazing season of 300 days by adding a single practice or during the first year, but each practice adopted helps get closer to that goal. Getting started is often the biggest hurdle. Deciding on which practices are most beneficial and in what order to start using them can be very confusing. The University of Arkansas Research and Extension has developed a five-step process that helps focus efforts on practices that can have the most impact with existing forage resources. The key is to start with the existing forage base and always plan at least one season ahead to ensure plenty of time to incorporate each new phase. The first step is to take a complete inventory of the forage base. Identify what forages are available for grazing during each season, and then build on that inventory by improving existing forages with management practices like fertilization and weed control. The third step is to add a complementary forage to fill in any seasonal gaps, and be sure to plan short-term and long-term options. The fourth step is to outline your forage and grazing practices for the year ahead. And don't forget to write it on the calendar. And finally, monitor and adjust forages and stocking rates by keeping records of each practice. Keeping records of the successes and challenges associated with different practices is important. These records can be notes on a calendar, or if you're a more detailed person, you can use a logbook or a computer. Some of the records you might find helpful as your system gains longevity are hay feeding, beginning and ending dates, when planted or stockpiled forages are ready for grazing, soil nutrient differences, and it's also fun to know how much time and money you save during the program. Severe conditions may not occur every year, but good records will provide a reference for practices that worked best in good and bad conditions. If you would like to work out a plan for your operation, I can help you create a grazing map and a plan working with your current forage base. Give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Wildlife damage problems can be prevented with good management the primary aim should be to prevent damage from occurring. When it does occur, each problem should be studied individually. The best wildlife damage management program is based on the following principles. Most of the damage is caused by relatively few individuals, not by all of them. When this individual or individuals is removed, damage will stop and the people who experience the problem are in the best position to locate the animal and reduce losses promptly. Changes in management of the property being damaged may be needed to prevent further loss or a reoccurrence of loss at a later time. 
considerable damage from wild animals occurs directly to crops and livestock and as a health problem to man and domestic animals. Nearly all wild animals in Kansas are native and they provide equilibrium to the environment. Managing only the species considered to be good or endangered is not recommended. Sometimes animals considered to be beneficial can be equally damaging, such as deer in an orchard, squirrels in a pecan grove, or muskrats in a pond dike. In reality, any animal can be either good or bad, depending on the situation. Populations fluctuate due to environmental influences. Animals change normal population parameters to recover from the loss of individuals. Because of these responses, control efforts will be less effective. In good habitat, animal populations respond to removal with increased birth rate, decreased mortality, and decreased immigration. Changes in mortality, birth, and dispersal rates occur in response to decreased density. Species that reproduce seasonally exhibit an annual cycle. During the reproductive period, births normally exceed deaths and the population increases. When reproduction ceases, mortality exceeds recruitment and the population declines until the next breeding season. A population change of two to five fold is not uncommon during an average animal cycle. Factors that affect this pattern include immigration, adverse weather, and habitat disruption. The cycle is most pronounced in species that produce only one litter per year. Wildlife damage also fluctuates with cycles. Damage is seldom a problem when populations are low. During peak years, damage may become severe and require frequent intensive control efforts. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Ensrance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Many people are calling into our office worried about their trees that are suddenly dropping leaves after long periods of rain. Some people think that this disease might harm their tree. Every time, the disease in question has been anthracnose. While all calls have come regarding either sycamores or maples, anthracnose is non-selective in its host, affecting over 100 species of trees and shrubs. This disease affects lower leaves first, and dropped leaves look like they have been burned. Small black spots coalesce to form large black sections of leaves, and in severe infections will cause leaves to drop prematurely. If the disease happens early enough in the growing season, trees and shrubs will typically regrow any leaves in the early summer that fell from the disease. Anthracnose is a foliar fungal disease that becomes more severe in cool, wet weather. Fungal diseases primarily spread through water, which means that springtime is when you will see most disease pressure on your landscape plants. Anthracnose is not a systemic disease. The only leaves affected will be those that came into contact with the pathogen. Although defoliation will affect the look of the tree, it will not harm mature trees long term. Younger trees will need more protection from disease, but should also push through infection with minimal damage. Homeowners have several viable control options for reducing the impact of anthracnose in their landscapes. 
The first and most effective method is to regularly prune trees and shrubs. Trees with too many branches will have thicker leaf canopies that do not allow regular airflow between the leaves. After rainfall, this keeps leaves wet for extended periods of time, which increases the chance for the fungal pathogen to infect leaves it lands on. By pruning regularly to keep the healthiest and most structurally sound branches, you not only ease stress from potential diseases, but are also able to keep the tree strong and in the shape you want. Removing infected leaves from the base of the tree and lower branches also reduces the chance of the pathogen spreading. These leaves can be used in compost piles, so long as the compost gets hot enough to kill the fungus. Lastly, spraying newer trees with a fungicide will protect any uninfected growth. Fungicides will not cure any infected leaves, and spraying mature trees quickly becomes cost prohibitive, but with small, newer trees, it is more feasible. Whether your tree is mature or newly planted, Maintaining soil fertility will provide infected trees the nutrients they need to bounce back from an infection. If considering planting new trees, investigate the cultivar's resistance to fungal diseases. With southeastern Kansas's weather, prepare for springs with heavy rainfall and high disease pressure. For more information about tree susceptibility to disease and cultivar selection, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at jr637 at ksu.edu or at 620-724-8233. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Port Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.